Welcome to the MacArthur Memorial Podcast. Located in Norfolk, Virginia, the MacArthur Memorial is a museum and research center dedicated to the life and legacy of General of the Army Douglas MacArthur. The memorial is also dedicated to preserving and presenting the story of the millions of men and women who served with General MacArthur. Each month, the staff of the memorial will use this podcast to explore topics relating to General MacArthur and his times. Today we're going to talk about General Douglas MacArthur and General Jonathan Wainwright, two American commanders whose careers are indelibly intertwined with one of the darkest moments of American military history, the fall of the Philippines at the beginning of World War II. Both men would receive the Medal of Honor for their handling of this doomed situation, and both would be haunted by Bataan and Corregidor for the rest of their lives. Apart from their proven bravery on the battlefield, and the depth of their devotion to duty, two more different men would have been hard to find. Intense, proud, aristocratic, larger than life and aloof, MacArthur stood in stark contrast to Wainwright, a tall, quiet man with sloping shoulders and a very thin, almost gaunt face, affectionately called skinny by his troops. Officers that served under both generals had a unique perspective of their differences. Colonel James D. Carter, an officer who survived Bataan and Corregidor, described the generals this way. MacArthur saw the big picture. Wainwright accepted what was there today and worked with that. Another officer, Colonel Paul Krauss, came up with a biblical metaphor that likened MacArthur to Moses, commanding the waters to separate, and Wainwright to King Saul, fearlessly leading his people into battle. Ironically, both men shared a similar past. Both were sons of army officers, literally born into the army when their mothers gave birth to them on army bases. As their fathers fought in the Indian Wars, Wainwright and MacArthur grew up on army bases in the American West. Wainwright entered West Point shortly after the turn of the century and was a plebe when MacArthur was a first-classman. Like MacArthur, Wainwright would end his time at West Point as first captain of the Corps of Cadets. From there, the similarities continue. After receiving their commissions, both young men served their first tour of duty in the Philippines. World War I would find them both in France, Wainwright as Assistant Chief of Staff of the 82nd Division, and MacArthur as Chief of Staff and later Commander of the 42nd Division. The two men's paths would begin to diverge after World War I. Whereas MacArthur enjoyed a meteoric rise through the ranks and became the youngest superintendent of West Point and the youngest chief of staff of the United States Army, Wainwright spent the next 20 years as a cavalry and general staff officer before he finally made general officer in 1938. In 1940, Wainwright was sent to the Philippines on what was supposed to be the final post of his career. This fateful post would forever seal together the names of Douglas MacArthur and Jonathan Wainwright. Before the war began in late 1941, MacArthur had been recalled from retirement to command the U.S. Army forces far east in the Philippines. Wainwright became his senior field commander. Tasked with stopping a Japanese invasion on the northern beaches of the island of Luzon, when the Japanese did invade, 
Wainwright's conscript army of Filipino farmers and Green regular troops were overpowered. Wainwright retreated, successfully pulling his forces back to Bataan. MacArthur later wrote of this time that Wainwright had done wonders in his efforts to stop and then delay the Japanese. As the American and Filipino forces settled in at Bataan and Corregidor, the situation became desperate. Despite hopes of aid from the United States, the defenders watched as their limited supplies dwindled. Morale also suffered, particularly on Bataan. Ever a source of inspiration, Wainwright made himself very visible to the defenders of Bataan, but this was not always enough. Many of the defenders wanted to see General MacArthur, who had established his headquarters on Corregidor. Although the two American positions were separated by a mere five-minute torpedo boat ride, MacArthur only visited Bataan once, on January 10, 1942. His overall lack of presence on Bataan would ultimately earn him the nickname Dugout Doug. On March 10, 1942, MacArthur asked Wainwright to come see him on Corregidor. Making the short journey from Bataan to Corregidor, Wainwright went to MacArthur's headquarters in the Malinta Tunnel and met with MacArthur's chief of staff, General Richard Sutherland. Sutherland told him that MacArthur had been ordered to leave Corregidor and then took him to MacArthur's cottage outside of the tunnel. MacArthur came out on the porch to meet them and shook hands with Wainwright. He explained, Jonathan, I want you to understand my position very plainly. I'm leaving for Australia pursuant to repeated orders of the President. Things have gotten to such a point that I must comply with these orders or get out of the Army. I want you to make it known throughout all elements of your command that I'm leaving over my repeated protests. MacArthur repeatedly emphasized that Wainwright must hold out and wait for him to return with reinforcements. Wainwright declared that holding Bataan was his greatest priority, and after a short discussion, MacArthur appeared satisfied that Wainwright, an old cavalry officer, understood that he must defend in depth and not get stuck thinking in terms of thin, mobile lines of cavalry. As the conversation continued, MacArthur became agitated about the dwindling supplies and other issues plaguing the defenders. Wainwright finally cut him off by saying, You'll get through, at which point MacArthur again repeated his promise to return. As the two said goodbye, MacArthur gave Wainwright a box of cigars and two large jars of shaving cream. These might seem like odd gifts, but for the defenders of Bataan and Corregidor, living on meager rations, lacking the most basic comforts, these items were a luxury. As Wainwright left, MacArthur told him he would be promoted to lieutenant general if he was still on Bataan when MacArthur returned. At this, Wainwright again reassured MacArthur, responding, I'll be on Bataan if I'm alive. Before he left, MacArthur intentionally split up the command of all forces in the Philippines, leaving himself as overall commander, even though he would be in Australia. He named Brigadier General Louis Beebe as his chief of staff in the Philippines. MacArthur's intention was that no one commander would have the authority to surrender all of the forces in the Philippines, just the section of which they were in command. This would allow surviving forces to continue fighting or melt away into a guerrilla force and carry on an insurgency against the Japanese. 
This command structure left the War Department relatively confused, and on March 17th, Army Chief of Staff General George Marshall sent a message to Wainwright acknowledging him as overall commander of forces in the Philippines. As confusion mounted, MacArthur belatedly informed Marshall of the subdivided command. Marshall, however, was firmly convinced that a 4,000-mile gap between MacArthur and the Philippines was impractical. President Roosevelt agreed, and MacArthur ultimately conceded, declaring himself heartily in accord with Wainwright's immediate promotion to lieutenant general and commander of all forces in the Philippines. If morale had been low on Bataan and Corregidor before MacArthur left, those left behind viewed the news of his departure as the writing on the wall. Despite this blow, however, Wainwright proved to be a good choice to replace MacArthur. He was immensely popular with the troops, who were heartened by his selection and were willing to fight for him. On March 21st, Wainwright turned his Bataan command over to Major General Edward King and departed for Corregidor. The next day, his tour of the island's defenses was interrupted by Japanese bombs. Driven back to the Malinta Tunnel entrance, Wainwright had just entered the tunnel when the vehicle he had just vacated was destroyed by yet another load of bombs. A little shocked, Wainwright exclaimed, My gosh, on Bataan you can move around a little, but here on Corregidor you're right on the bullseye. As with MacArthur, once living on this bullseye, Wainwright would make few, if any, trips to Bataan. On March 26th, General MacArthur received the Medal of Honor for the defense of Bataan and Corregidor. He announced that he accepted the award on behalf of the defenders of Bataan and Corregidor, but he never wore the medal and was never photographed with it. That same day, Wainwright assured President Roosevelt that the American flag would remain flying in the Philippines as long as an American soldier and an ounce of food and a round of ammunition remained. Radiograms from Washington continued to arrive in the Philippines, promising aid and informing Wainwright of potential naval offensives that would help relieve the Philippines. Anticipating this aid, Wainwright informed Washington that his position in the Philippines could be held indefinitely. Messages like this continued to go between Washington, MacArthur, and the Philippines. Within weeks, however, it became clear to Wainwright, as it had to MacArthur, that supplies and reinforcements were not coming. On April 9th, MacArthur received word that Bataan had surrendered. Furious, he demanded an explanation from Wainwright. In response, Wainwright stressed that he disapproved of the surrender and had ordered that there be no surrender. Devastated, MacArthur called his naval aide, Captain James Ray, into his office, and with tears streaming down his face, he explained that Bataan had fallen and that his request to return to his forces in the Philippines had been denied. Thousands of miles away from the Philippines, MacArthur was powerless to halt the looming disaster. The next day, Wainwright informed his troops on Corregidor that Bataan had fallen, but that Corregidor would carry on. Over the next weeks, the Japanese continuously shelled Corregidor. This resulted in incredible damage, and many of the shells triggered landslides on the island's hills that were just as damaging as a direct hit. On the evening of May 5th, using 400 pieces of artillery on Bataan, 
the Japanese put their previous barrages to shame. Watching from aboard the USS Quail, Lieutenant Commander John Morrill watched as the entire island appeared one vast sheet of flame, and then disappeared behind a thick impervious cloud of dust and debris. On Corregidor, Wainwright was convinced that the attack was the opening salvo of a Japanese landing. Three hours after the barrage began, his suspicions were confirmed when Japanese troops began landing at the north point of the island. Firing off a quick message describing the situation to MacArthur, Wainwright spent the night moving between various defensive headquarters. Two thousand Japanese troops landed in the first wave, but the efforts of the defenders and the remaining few operable batteries on the island ensured that less than half of the attacking force made it to shore. Only six thousand of the ten thousand man second wave would make it to shore. In the early hours of May 6th, Wainwright informed MacArthur and President Roosevelt that he intended to counterattack and drive the Japanese back into the sea. By 10 a.m., however, he received reports that the Japanese were landing tanks in preparation for an assault on the Malinta Tunnel, the last stronghold of the defenders. At this point, Wainwright decided to surrender, reasoning that an assault by tanks would result in the massacre of all of the defenders. After informing his staff of this decision at 10.30, Wainwright instructed that a message be broadcast to the Japanese, informing them that at noon the American flag above Corregidor would be lowered and replaced with a flag of truce. There was no acknowledgment of this message. The Japanese continued their assault on the fortress, and Wainwright had the message rebroadcast at 11 and then again at 11.45. Shortly before noon, Wainwright sent a message to Roosevelt, explaining his decision to surrender and one to MacArthur, telling the general, We have done our full duty for you and for our country. We are sad but unashamed. I have fought for you to the best of my ability, always hoping relief was on the way. Goodbye, General. My regards to you and our comrades in Australia. May God strengthen your arm to ensure ultimate success of the cause for which we have fought side by side. At noon, the stars and stripes were lowered over Corregidor. The Japanese attack continued. Wainwright sent a Marine officer to the Japanese lines to negotiate a ceasefire. When the officer returned, he informed Wainwright that the Japanese officer refused to go to Wainwright. Wainwright placed his service weapon on a table and walked out of the Melinta Tunnel, and was driven down the hill towards Japanese lines. There he encountered a Japanese lieutenant. Before Wainwright could even speak, the lieutenant shouted that no surrender would be accepted unless it was for all American and Filipino forces in the Philippines. Wainwright responded, I do not choose to discuss surrender terms with you. Take me to the senior officer present on Corregidor. He was then brought before Colonel Nakayama, who repeated the lieutenant's demands. Again Wainwright deferred, asking instead to speak to General Homa, an equal in terms of rank. Nakayama conceded and went with Wainwright to the north dock to secure transport to Bataan. Nakayama was forced to take cover as Japanese shells continuously hit the island. Frustrated, Wainwright yelled at Nakayama, asking why the Japanese didn't stop shelling. 
Nakayama's answer was plain. The Japanese had not accepted the surrender yet, so a ceasefire was impossible. Eventually, Wainwright reached Bataan, and after a long wait was able to meet with General Homa. Homa repeated through an interpreter what his subordinates had said, demanding a total surrender of all forces, not just those on Corregidor. Having already divided up his command so that such a surrender would not be possible, as MacArthur had tried to do earlier, Wainwright explained that he did not have the authority to order a total surrender. Not buying this, Homa made it clear that without such a surrender, there would be no ceasefire. By the time Wainwright finally agreed to comply, it was too late. Citing Wainwright's earlier statements that he did not have the authority to surrender all forces, Homa informed him that he could surrender instead to the ranking Japanese officer on Corregidor. Meanwhile, the assault on Corregidor would continue. With that, Homa departed, leaving Wainwright and his officers feeling completely helpless. Thinking of the men and women he had left behind, Wainwright ultimately agreed to send a member of his staff to other commands in the Philippines to order them all to surrender as well. When informed of this decision, Colonel Nakayama refused to accept the surrender, but told Wainwright that they would take him back to Corregidor, where he could then surrender to the Japanese commanding officer there. Taken back to Corregidor the next day, Wainwright was finally able to surrender. On returning to the Malinta Tunnel, he was shocked to find his forces already outside of the tunnel and the Japanese in full control of the island. The day prior, as he'd been struggling to get the Japanese to accept his surrender, Brigadier General Charles Drake had surrendered the fortress to the Japanese. With no word from Wainwright or any of the other officers with him, as senior officer, Drake had concluded that they were either dead or prisoners. With water running out and over a thousand sick and wounded lying helpless in the tunnels, Drake decided to try his own efforts at surrendering. Making contact with a Japanese officer, Drake agreed to evacuate the tunnels if the Japanese stopped shelling the entrances. When the firing ceased, Drake ordered the men and women in the tunnels to walk out, surrendering Corregidor. When MacArthur learned of the surrender, he released the following statement. Corregidor needs no comment from me. It has sounded its own story at the mouth of its guns. It has scrolled its own epitaph on enemy tablets. But through the bloody haze of its last reverberating shot, I shall always seem to see a vision of grim, gaunt, ghastly men still unafraid. Privately and in messages to the War Department, MacArthur seethed. He even went as far as to suggest that Wainwright had become unbalanced. Later in the war, when asked to recommend Wainwright for the Medal of Honor, MacArthur refused, withholding his reasons. Following the surrender, Wainwright went into captivity with the rest of the defenders of Corregidor, spending time in prisoner of war camps in the Philippines, Formosa, and China. While he sat in prison for three years, plagued with thoughts of disgrace and dishonor, MacArthur was given the opportunity to lead the recapture of the Philippines and share in the victory over Japan. When the war unofficially ended in August of 1945, no one even knew where Wainwright or any other senior Allied commanders were. When word finally came of Wainwright's location, the War Department asked MacArthur if he would like Wainwright flown to the surrender ceremony. MacArthur agreed. 
The two men were reunited in Japan in late August of 1945. Eating dinner in Yokohama's new Grand Hotel, MacArthur was informed that Wainwright had arrived. Before he could go out to greet him, Wainwright walked into the dining room. MacArthur was shocked by his appearance, later writing that Wainwright was haggard and aged. His uniform hung in folds on his fleshless form. He walked with difficulty and with the help of a cane. He made an effort to smile as I took him into my arms. For three years he had imagined himself in disgrace for having surrendered. MacArthur's anger was gone. Dispelling Wainwright's fears, MacArthur assured him that his old command was his when he was ready for it. On September 2nd, both generals were present when the Japanese signed the Instrument of Surrender aboard the USS Missouri. MacArthur used six pens to sign the surrender documents. Finishing with the first pen, he turned and gave it to Wainwright, honoring him during the ceremony and effectively closing a major chapter of their lives. Wainwright was awarded the Medal of Honor by President Truman upon his return to the United States. It is still unclear why MacArthur objected to giving Wainwright this honor. It may have been that he held Wainwright responsible for the fall of the Philippines, or he may have had other private reservations, reasons that he would only hint at in a message to the War Department. Whatever the case, Wainwright would never hold any of this against MacArthur. Years later, at the 1952 Republican National Convention, when it seemed that MacArthur might become the party's nominee for president, Wainwright was loyally waiting in the wings to make the nominating speech. Brigadier General Bradford Chenoweth, one of the American commanders in the Philippines who went into captivity with General Wainwright, later wrote, The function of command is rightly considered a great honor, but command, without means or the authority to fulfill it, is a bitter cup. In their careers, both MacArthur and Wainwright would drink from this bitter cup. Thank you for listening. We look forward to continuing this dialogue with you. If you have any questions, comments, or suggestions, please feel free to contact Amanda Williams at amanda.williams at norfolk.gov.